1 Samuel 13. The final speech that Samuel gave regarding the uh, choice of a king is, is over with. That was chapter 12. He gave the speech there. The essence of that speech, if you weren't here last time, was that Saul, or Samuel rather, not Samuel, uh, yeah, Samuel vindicated himself. Get Saul and Samuel confused. He vindicated himself as the final judge of Israel. Uh, he says in that chapter, chapter 12, he said that he had committed no wrongdoing as judge. He had not bribed anybody. He had not oppressed anybody. He had not defrauded anybody. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 3. His own words, he says, Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord, his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. Saul had done none of that, or, or Samuel had done none of that. He had been innocent as a judge. He'd been, uh, he'd been a good judge, a fair judge. It was Israel that had done the wrong in selecting a king like all the nations. They didn't want Samuel to be over them anymore. They wanted to have a king like all the nations. They're the ones that did wrong in, that, in the way they went about it. Nevertheless, Samuel in his speech in chapter 12 says, if you serve the Lord, you and your king, everything's going to be well. But if not, look at the last verse of chapter 12. If you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. It's a solemn warning that is given to the people of Israel as they get prepared to enter upon the kingship of Saul. And so we go to chapter 13. But chapter 13 does not turn out so well for Saul. Things are going to go downhill. He'd gotten off to such a great start in chapter 11. Remember that? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And uh, he had gone out to battle, and he was enabled to defeat the Ammonites, the enemy of Israel. And to top it all off, he'd even given glory to God. Saul, yeah, we think of Saul as the disobedient guy always, but chapter 11 he wasn't that way. He'd given glory to God for the victory that God gave. So he had a great start. And chapter 11 may have been the high point of his reign. Uh, but things are going to go... I think he's going to begin to unravel in this chapter. First of all, we'll see this in Saul's desperation in the first seven verses, Saul's desperation. Verse 1 says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, and they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. And the men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, but as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling, Saul's desperation. It doesn't start off as desperate, but as things go on in the first seven verses, um, he gets to, to the point of desperation. Now, verse 1 is very difficult to interpret. You're looking at your Bible and you're saying, what's so big deal? what's the big deal about verse 1? I'm bringing this up because I have to. I'd rather not. Uh, it says in your NASB, Saul was, notice the italicized words, 30 and 40. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40. Italicized two years over Israel. Unfortunately, that's not what the Hebrew says at all. It says, literally, a son of a year was Saul 
when he, began to, when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. Saul was the son of a year when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. That's what it says. Now, what does that mean? What is this idea of a son of a year? Well, sometimes in Hebrew, a person's age is described that way. For example, back in Genesis, where it, when it says Noah was 500 years, years old, it says literally Noah was a son of 500 years, just a Hebrew way of saying Noah was 500 years old, so therefore it comes across in English that way. Now, does that mean that when Saul began to reign, he started his reign at the age of one? He was one year old when he began to reign. That's what it literally says. I highly doubt that he was a year old when he began to reign, the baby king. doesn't make much sense at all, does it? Now, so what does it mean? Well, it depends on what English translation you're looking at. If you're looking at an ESV, which I know some of you have right now, it says Saul was dot, dot, dot. Did you say that, Brad? Did you have an ESV with you? Oh, Brad, you may switch on me here. <laughs> dot, 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 years old, and he was, and he reigned dot, 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 years. Why does it say that? Why does the Nazi say in italics 30 years and 40 years? I'm, have, I'm bringing this up because you're going to come across it. You're going to see it. So, Well, they're making, these translations are making a guess. King James says something different. He was one year old, and then he reigned, or it says he reigned for one year, and then he reigned two years. He chose 3,000 men. Why does it say all this? Well, the reason is they're trying to figure out what the text is saying. It's difficult to interpret. And they're, they're, they're trying to guess that Saul must be at least 30 years of age when he begins his reign. And he reigns, according to Acts 13, 21, Saul reigned for 40 years. They figure that in, and they figure, well, he reigned 40 years. And it says two in the Hebrew, so it must be 42 years, actually. Um, you see, some scholars believe, many think, that the numbers have dropped out of the Hebrew text. They're not there anymore, and so we've got to figure out what it's saying. We've got to put numbers in to try to speculate. Some people say the and I'm not going to spend much time on this verse, by the way. Just I need to address it a little bit. Others say the author of 1 Samuel did not know how long Saul reigned. He had no idea. The guy that wrote, whoever wrote Samuel, so therefore he, he put uh, this ambiguous phrase in. Some people say that the phrase is ambiguous, that it, it, when it says the son of a year, uh, there's no numerical, num, no number next to it. It means just a, he's a certain age. Just an ambiguous phrase when he began to reign. Um, some say the reign of Saul, when it says two years at the end of the verse, um, that means that he, he reigned two years in the eyes of God before God rejected him as king. He reigned 40 years total, but he reigned only two years before God rejected him. And all these different you know, conjectures come up as to what this means. Well, I think we just need to leave the text alone. Whatever it means, I'll tell you one thing. If you think I have the answer tonight, I don't. I don't have the answer. I'm going to have to keep studying this. I don't know what it means. I, I can tell you what everybody says it means. And listen, you can study it yourself, but please do me a favor. Don't come up with a dogmatic answer tonight, okay? And come back and say, I know exactly what it means, you know? Well, that was just like the old independent Baptist used to do. I used to go to their church. But uh, anyway, don't, don't do that. But chapter the chapter does not rise and fall on verse 1, okay? It doesn't rise and fall on, chapter, on verse 1. That's, don't let that overwhelm the rest of the chapter. It's one of those things that we, that we don't know the answer to right now, okay? And there's a message in this chapter, though, we want to get to, and so let's get to that. In, in chapter 8, Israel had demanded a king. Like all the other nations, they wanted a king to judge them. They wanted a king, what else did they want a king for? To fight their battles, right? They wanted a king to fight their battles. And Saul had proven his military leadership in chapter 11. He had wiped out the Ammonites, or won the battle against the Ammonites, rather, in that chapter. 
And now he's going to face the main enemy of Israel, the Philistines, during this time. They're always having problems with the Philistines. And so Saul goes out and chooses a standing army of 3,000 men. 2,000 are going to be under the command of Saul. 1,000 is under the command of Jonathan. Now, we don't find out who Jonathan is until verse 16. We find out there that that's the son of Saul. And so they're going to have these guys under their, under their control, and, uh, and they're going to fight with these men. The rest of the people he sends home, it says. Apparently, he thought that was enough, enough people to fight. Now, Saul's stationed in Michmash. That's about four and a half miles from the city of Gibeah. Gibeah is where the hometown of Saul is. And uh, it's also strategic because it's only about like a mile and a half, two miles away from Geba where the Philistines are stationed, pretty close to them. And Jonathan and his men are in a place called, or in the hometown of Saul, Gibeah. And so um, they are going to fight. Now, like I said, there's more men available. But Saul, Saul says, I got my 3,000 guys. This is all I need. Let's go, let's go fight. You guys go back to your tents in verse 2. Now, we're going to find out in verse 3, it's not Saul, the king, who strikes the first blow against the garrison of the Philistines. It's Jonathan who does that, not Saul. He smites the, the garrison, garrison of the Philistines in Geba. By the way, that garrison is an outpost of the Philistines who are stationed well inside, deep inside the territory of Israel. They're just stationed there. They have a, 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 somewhat of a little, a small gathering there. They're making their presence known in Israel by this garrison. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 7, verse 13, the Philistines had attacked Israel in their own territory, and God had thundered with a great thunder from the sky, it says there, and it says that the Philistines were subdued. They did not again enter the territory of Israel after that. However, we find the Philistines in the territory of Israel. So what's going on here? Well, I think in chapter 7, it's, it, when it says it didn't enter the land of Israel again, the Philistines, it's talking about the, con the context is one of attacking Israel, like they did in chapter 7. They didn't enter with the intention of attacking, with, with the launching this unprovoked offensive against the, uh, the Israelites. They didn't do that. They didn't have that as an intention. Um, they, had not, they, had not they weren't attacking. They did have a presence there, but they had not been provoked in the, by Israel, and, and so they were content to stay there as a garrison. But now... This outpost, this garrison, is attacked by Israel. And chapter 13, verse 3 says, the Philistines heard of it. That is, the Philistines living in the land of Philistia, they heard about their garrison inside, deep inside the territory of Israel had been attacked. They heard about that. And, and so it says Israel had become odious to the Philistines. In other words, uh, Israel had become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. And so in response, they assemble this massive army compared here to the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they were so brazen as to come up and set up camp at Michmash, where Saul had previously been. And by the way, Saul is now assembling his people at, at another place called Gilgal in verse 4. That will come and play later on. And we're going to find out that is where Samuel told Saul to go and to meet him at Gilgal. And so they bring up their army. They've got 6,000 horsemen, 30,000 chariots. And by the way... The Philistines are known and feared far and wide for their chariots and how they could use them in a, in a battle. And so Samuel, Saul rather, had attacked Philistines and attacked their garrison and defeated them. But now he opens up a hornet's nest because of that. You see, you ever go in your backyard and like I did recently and I was with Ezekiel as a matter of fact and uh, we were back there and hornets were kind of here and there. And they were stationed, you know, they had little places on the wall they were at and they had formed nests and all this 
And so you spray it with bug spray, and the next thing you know, the, the hornets are flying at you, right, trying to, to come after you. <laughs> you ever had that happen? Well, this is what happened here. It's like they woke up this, this hornet's nest, and now the Philistines are gonna, they're going to prepare to slaughter Israel. They're seeking revenge here. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Saul do the right thing in seeking to attack the Philistines? He did, because his, one of his jobs was to protect Israel. One of his jobs was to fight the battles of Israel. And the Philistines were a national threat. They were becoming a bigger threat, even maintaining a presence within Israel, and God did not want them to do that. And so Saul needed to take action, and he did. Some would say he didn't take action as early as he should have. He should have taken action sooner than this, even. Nevertheless, he, he does this, and his actions pro pro provoke, even enrage, the Philistines. Well, some people think that he was, he was rash in his attack. Some people think that it's kind of like Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, that Saul should never have done this because he woke up the sleeping giant, but that's not what happened here. God never wanted Israel to be taken over and occupied by the enemy. He's, he's always been against that. And so Saul did the right thing. And, uh, and so as we, but we, as we go through this uh, chapter, we're going to see how much of an advantage the Philistines have over Israel. You'll see it more and more. So it was right to attack the Philistines. That was the right thing to do. But this backlash takes place. You know, spiritual life is like that also. You go about doing, trying to do the right thing. You do what the Lord wants you to do, right? You engage in a spiritual conflict. You witness to someone who doesn't know the Lord. You talk to someone who, who doesn't know God. And you take a stand for the truth. But sometimes challenging the darkness, the kingdom of darkness, is going to be a problem for you going to turn out to be a problem for you. It's going to bring you to a serious problem. Look what happened to Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, when he stood up against gay marriage. Backlash. You open up a hornet's nest from the media, right? The good thing about that was everybody responded and went to Chick-fil-A the next day and, and supported him. Kind of like Phil Robertson last week, Duck Dynasty, who said what he said. I'm, not, I'm talking about the comment about uh, homosexuality and how homosexuality was a sin. And he's right about that. And I know church, Phil Robertson has a Church of Christ background. I'm not defending that right now. But he, what he stood for against homosexuality was right. And a backlash took place because of it. So when we stand for God on something, sometimes something's going to happen. It's gonna, the fallout may be greater than you thought it was going to be. Because that's just part of what this is all about. Jeremiah prophesied the coming judgment of, of uh, Babylon to Judah, to the to the people in Israel. He said, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to attack you. Again and again, he said, and guess what he got for his trouble? He got ridiculed and he got put in prison for it. Stephen, as Mike said this morning, preached a message and, and people were convicted to the heart. And as a result of that, he was stoned to death. The fallout from doing what was the right thing, right? Aquila and Priscilla, it says, risked their necks for the Apostle Paul because they got involved in the, the Apostle Paul's ministry. Well, they walk right into a hornet's nest doing that. And sometimes doing what is necessary and right in the sight of the Lord will get you into those circumstances. It'll happen. It'll put you in the line of fire. And the only thing you can do under those circumstances is what? Trust the Lord, right? And that's what you have to do. And so sometimes doing what's right will bring you unintended consequences. But doing right is also what's pleasing to God, right? So Saul did the right thing here. But for Saul, things are going to go from bad to worse. Look at verse 6. It says here, when the men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars, and pits. 
the soldiers of Israel realized what a desperate situation they were in. Now they realize, oh man, we opened up this can of worms. These guys are coming like sand on the seashore sea to attack us. They're bringing all their chariots, which we're fearful of. And it says here that they're in a strait, meaning they're in trouble. The situation was critical at this time. They, things are looking bad. It says the people were hard-pressed, meaning they were, the people were under great pressure. So things are not looking good at all for Saul. He's in a desperate situation. So what did they do? Well, you know the old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? And that's what happened. The tough got going. The army began to go AWOL. They, they began to defect from, from Saul, and they had, in large numbers even, and they had two choices as to how they could defect. Number one, they could find the nearest hiding place, or number two, they could completely leave the area. And so that's, that's what they did. Verse, one, verse 6 describes the first option. They hid themselves in the caves and thickets and so on. There are many caves in Israel in which to hide, all over the place. David would later hide in one of those caves, and some of these guys... They sought shelter and, and hiding place in caves. Some of the soldiers did. Get out of here. We're in trouble. I'm going to go hide in the nearest cave. Some of them hid in thickets, which were briars, bramble bushes. That could become a makeshift hideout. Hid behind that. Some people found refuge in a rocky cliff, a cleft in the rock, and where no one could see them, and they hid there. Some found cellars, which were kind of an underground chamber of some kind. Some hidden pits, which were cisterns in the ground that held water when it rained. And so wherever they could find a hiding place, they, they went and, and found a place to hide. Option number two is in verse 7. Some of them, it says, crossed the Jordan into the land of Gal Gad and, Ga and Gilead. There were some who wanted to distance themselves from the fighting altogether, and so they headed across east across the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River, where two and a half tribes of Israel settled down, they went way over there. They got out of the whole situation altogether. So you have this large segment of the army running away from the problem, trying to find any hole in the ground would do, any briar patch, thicket to hide behind would do. And so they defected, but not everybody defected. Uh, according to verse 7, there were, some, there were people still following Saul, but look at the end of verse 7. The people that were following him were trembling with fear. They were afraid. A lot of people had defected. The others following him were scared to death because of the situation they were in. There's no indication at all that Saul did anything to instill in the people confidence in God. Apparently did nothing at all. He seemed to be as helpless as the people were. Now, that's a normal reaction under the circumstances, isn't it? Get, you get yourself in a desperate situation. The reaction is to, to run, to hide, to be afraid. But they could have had, a, there was another choice. They could have allowed their circumstances to, to, to drive them to God, right? They could have done that. Wouldn't that have been the right course of action? And this was right on the heels of the speech of, in chapter 12 by Samuel. Remember Samuel talked about God's faithfulness to Israel in the past? Didn't he remind him of their faithfulness, of God's faithfulness throughout their history, how God had always been faithful again and again and again? Uh, he says in chapter 12, when they were in Egypt, and their lives were made bitter with hard bondage, what does it say when the people cried out, Samuel said in that speech, what happened? God sent Moses and Aaron, right? Appointed them leaders to bring you out of Egypt. And when in the days of the judges, the people were in desperate straits and oppressed by enemy nations, what, what happened? They cried out and what happened? God sent them judges, right? Human deliverers to save them from the hand of the enemy. And then in, in chapter 12, verse 22, Samuel says, the Lord will not abandon his people 
on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Samuel says, God's not going to abandon you. And so God was faithful to his people. He's not going anywhere. He's not leaving you. So they could have turned to him. Finally, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 12, 24, to further encourage them, Samuel said, consider what great things the Lord has done. And so he, he talks about God's faithfulness in all these verses. And the people knew this information. But it seems like they slipped out of their recollection. They seem to forget about They seem to have forgotten the sermon that Samuel had preached in chapter 12. There's no trust here in these verses. There's no trust in God. There's no faith in God here. There's no turning to the Lord in the face of all this looming disaster. There's only fear, right? There's only worry. There's only people being afraid. Where do you go when circumstances suddenly turn on you? Things are not going your way. Things are desperate. You're trying to do what's right, but everything's falling apart. What's your reaction to this? To those things? Is it worry? Is it fear? Like it was for these people? Do you want to just run away and hide? Sometimes we feel like that. Life can get very difficult. Later, David would write in Psalm 56, 3, he says, when I am afraid, what did he do? When I am afraid, he said, I will put my trust in you. I'll put my trust in you. Remember that God is faithful, just like Samuel reminded the people in chapter 12, he's faithful to walk with you in your difficult circumstances so we can put our trust in him. But Saul's men didn't do that. They didn't do that. They after they attacked the Philistines, they were victorious initially, but then this can of worm, worms opened up, and now they're in disarray. Now they're going AWOL. Now they're scattering. They're in fear, and, and Saul's desperate. And that brings us to verses 8 to 14, Saul's disobedience. Saul's disobedience. Let's read verses 8 to 12. It says, Now that they, he waited, Saul did, seven days, according, according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now Saul had been given a, a instruction to meet uh, Samuel at Gilgal and to wait for seven days for him. Now when he gave that command is not certain, but nevertheless he was given the command. But here's what's really important to note about this, these verses and the verses that follow here. The king is not ultimately the highest authority in the land. He's not ultimately the one that's in charge, actually. The, the highest authority in the land besides God is the prophet of God. The prophet of God. The king was the highest political authority in the land, but Israel, in Israel, the king was to be subject to the word of God spoken by the prophet. That's how it should have been. Remember Deuteronomy 17? The king was to write a copy of the law of the Lord in front of him and have it with him so he learned to fear God. Which I don't see Saul ever doing it. Maybe he did, it doesn't say. But, but God, but Saul was to be under the, the spiritual authority of Samuel. There's this unique relationship that existed between the prophet of God and the king. You see that through the Old Testament. The prophet's always going to the king. Elijah went to the king and giving him a prophecy from God. There's a relationship that exists, and the king is supposed to listen to God, right, and to the prophet. But that didn't always happen, and inevitably, when it didn't happen, when the king turned his back on the words of the prophet, guess what happened? The king was judged, right? King was judged by God. 
So even the king was to be subordinate to the word of God. And it doesn't matter if you're a CEO or a, or, or a, a worker making minimum wage. You know, every believer is to be under the authority of God's word, regardless of who they are. 2 Peter 1.19 says, We have a more sure word of prophecy to which you will do well to pay attention. We never get to the place where we're so successful or so elevated in our life, in our job or whatever, that we're under, out from under the authority of the Scriptures. Never that way. We're always to be under the authority of the Scriptures. God's given us the word to obey, and we're called upon to do just that. So the word of God is our final authority as it was for Saul. So Saul waited out the seven days, verse 8, as he had been instructed to do. And it says Samuel did not come to Gilgal. He didn't come during that time period. You know, back then, sacrifices were offered twice a day, morning and evening. It could be that, that Samuel, you know, arrived after the evening sacrifice on the seventh day. It could be he came on the eighth day. I don't know when he came. It doesn't say. But at any rate, Saul's beginning to panic. He's waited out the time period that he feels like he needs to wait out. He's panicking. Many people had deserted him. People were still scattering from him. So he's in this desperate situation. And so Saul decides, I'm going to take it upon myself. And I'm going to offer the sacrifices. And that's what he does in verse 9. But guess what? Who makes an appearance? As soon as this is over with, as soon as he makes the offering, guess who appears on the scene? As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrives, right? How about that for timing? He comes right after this is over. But apparently Saul doesn't feel like he's done anything wrong at all. It says he greets Samuel here. Actually, the word there is blessed. He blesses Samuel. Hey, Blessing upon you, Samuel, when he arrives there. But Samuel's not in the mood for small talk. He's not in the mood for polite greetings. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Notice how Samuel greets him in return. He says, what have you done? What have you done? It's a searching question, isn't it? It reminds you of other times in the Bible that the question was asked. Remember when the Lord said to, to Eve in the Garden of Eden after she ate the fruit, what is this that you have done? Remember that was the same question the Lord asked Cain uh, after he killed his brother, what have you done? It's the same statement Joshua made to Achan when Achan took the accursed thing. He says, he says, tell me, what have you done? And so Samuel says to Saul, what have you done, Saul? And so Saul begins to give his reasons for his actions. And you'll notice he blames everybody but himself. Everybody, verse 11, he says, he blames the people, first of all. He says, I saw that the people were scattering from me. They were leaving me. In other words, he says, I, I had to do something. My army's deserting me. I, I didn't know what else to do. I forced myself to do this thing. He blames the people. And then he blames Samuel. He says in verse 11, You did not come within the appointed days. And that pronoun you is emphatic. Literally, it's translated, You yourself did not come within the allotted time period. In other words, he says, It's not so much of, of what I've done. It's what you didn't do, Samuel. You didn't come on time. You're the one that's kind of at fault here, isn't it? Isn't that true? Had you been here, things would have been different, he says in so many words. So he blames, shifts the blame to Samuel. And then he blames the Philistines. He says, the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. In other words, what do you think? I, I, I had to do something. The enemy's preparing you to attack, Samuel. So he blames everybody but himself. He excuses himself. And if he could have blamed the Ammonites in chapter 11, he would have pulled them out too and blamed them. But it's not his fault. And we're reminded again of what happened in the Garden of Eden. 
Remember when Adam blamed Eve, his wife? She, she, the woman gave me to eat. And then he blames God, the woman you gave me? And then Eve blames the serpent? No, it's the serpent that did it. No, passing the blame. You know, no, not taking the responsibility for themselves. Isn't that how we are? Isn't that how we are? When, you know, it was put upon us, this is on you. Yeah, well, it's not really me. You know, you put the blame somewhere else. We blame our circumstances, right? We blame our friends. We blame our neighbors. We blame our fellow employees. We blame our background. We blame our, our, our education. We blame our lack of education. Uh, you know, we blame our environment, our church, everything, everybody except for me. I didn't do it <laughs> as uh, where I used to work. Guy, or he'd say, as soon as someone would enter in the room to say something, he'd say, I didn't do it before he was even approached at all. And that's how people, that's how we do, right? He says, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. I made myself do this thing. In other words, what choice did I have? I had no choice at all. I had to do something. So I did the nearest thing that I thought would help the matters out. I went ahead and offered these sacrifices. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? The king thought if he disobeyed God, he could please God. He could get God's help by disobeying God. Actually disobedient. How did Samuel respond to this explanation by Saul? How did, did, he, did he discuss it one point at a time? You know, Saul, you made some good points here. Your army certainly seems to be in disarray. I can see that. And still in me, I'm so unpunctual. I'm not punctual. I don't even get anywhere on time. And, you know... The Philistines are a rowdy bunch, you're right. They've got a lot of nerve, getting you all nervous and upset like this. Does he blame all those people? No, he doesn't do any of that at all. Look, look what he did. He takes a more direct approach. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what he says. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. He says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom upon Israel how long? forever but now your kingdom shall not endure the lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the command what the lord commanded you to do so this is serious business very serious saul had acted foolishly and how had he done so well twice samuel says you have not obeyed god's command you have Samuel tried to put it on him that you, if you had been here, you yourself had been here, things wouldn't have happened like this. And, and Samuel turns around and says, no, you have disobeyed the commandment of God. You're the one that's at fault here. Sin was disobedience to the word of God spoken through the prophet Samuel. He was supposed to do what Samuel said. He didn't do it. He took, the problem was he took matters into his own hands. The sin probably was not offering the offering because later on King David would do the same thing. And so would King Solomon. And although normally the priests offered offerings and that's how it should be done as a rule but those two kings did it later on and never rebuked for what they did but his sin was taking matters in his own hands and disobeying God's word uttered through the prophet and this would not be the last time he would do it he does it again in chapter 15 after Samuel gives explicit instructions and Saul disobeys them again and the Lord would gladly have established his kingdom forever it says but God knew that that wouldn't happen. He knew Samuel and Saul would disobey because he did not have that heart of obedience. And so the judgment is passed upon Saul that his kingdom is not going to endure. It's not going to endure. Saul will continue to reign, yes, as king, but he will, he will have lost his eternal dynasty. 
not going to have that eternal dynasty. That dynasty is going to go to another king. Verse 14 says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That man will be David. And his kingdom will be established how long? Forever, right? So it says again and again. And what is the difference between Samuel, Saul, or Saul and David? Are they all that much different? What's the difference between the two? The people asked for a king earlier like all the other nations, and they got Saul. But now the Lord's going to look for a man after his own heart, and Israel's going to get David. That's what's going to happen here. Was David perfect? Did David ever disobey God? Can we look at David and say, well, here's the shining example of obedience always. No, we don't see that either with him. But David's heart and the desire of his heart was to obey God. You see that? Whereas the direction of Saul's life was to rationalize, as you'll see in coming chapters, and to excuse himself and to follow the dictates of his own conscience. Not that Saul never obeyed God. He did. He got off to a great start in chapter 11, but the course of his life, in the course of his life, we observe a pattern, pattern of disobedience as we go on through the chapters, to God's word. And that leads us to ask this question, what kind of a heart do you have and do I have? Is it one that is inclined to follow God's word? Is the general course of life? Nobody here is perfect, obviously, but is it one that's inclined to follow God's word? Is it one that truly loves the Lord and desires what he has uh, for you? Desires to serve him? Is it one that's interested in the things of God or the things of men, as Christ told Peter? What is it? So the Lord's looking for people after his own heart, people who are like-minded with the Lord and what he wants to do, for people who are interested in his will. Saul was not such a man. He was marked by disobedience, as time will, will show us. So Saul's disobedience. And then finally, Saul's disadvantages in first verses 15 to 23, his disadvantages. Now, partly due to Saul's disobedience and partly due to the growing Philistine influence, Saul found himself in a severe military disadvantage, severely disadvantaged militarily. situation, quite honestly, looks hopeless. If you think about it, look at these disadvantages. First of all, he's now without Samuel's direction and blessing. Look at verse 15, the beginning of verse 15. What happens after Samuel said, you've disobeyed God, your kingdom's not going to be forever. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. He leaves. He's angry. He doesn't even say goodbye. Just ups and leaves and goes. You're on your own now, Saul. Do whatever you want to. I'm not going to be here to help you out. Probably Samuel would have prayed for him had he stayed, had Saul done what was right. Probably Samuel would have been there to support him, but no. Now Samuel's angry. And now Saul is without guidance of God's prophet Samuel. He doesn't have that guidance now. No word from God. No access to God's word, at least from the prophets. And so Samuel just leaves. Saul's on his own. Disadvantaged. Secondly, the second disadvantage is, is, is that Saul's forces are severely depleted. Look at the end of verse 15. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. How many did they have to start out with? 3,000, right? beginning of the chapter. But due to the desertion that took place, they now have 600 men, 20% of their original forces. They have far less people now. They're tremendously outnumbered by the enemy. He's like the sand by the seashore, it says. Third disadvantage, Saul was within shouting distance of the Philistines. Verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Kind of a reversal here. According to verses 2 and 3, Saul started out at Michmash. Philistines were in Geba. Now, <coughs> Philistines are in Michmash. Saul's in Geba. It's a, not a good advantage there because it's like one and a half miles maybe separating the two. 
a deep ravine separates the two cities. The Philistines are no like are likely on top of the mountain looking down, and the Israelites are disadvantaged. So they're too close for comfort at this point. And then fourthly, Saul's forces were sealed off. Look at verse 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. The raiders came from uh, the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. In other words, these raiding parties were detaching their soldiers going out to seal off all the exits and, and ways to help to, to, for Saul to escape. No way of escape. And they seal off the direction from the northern tribes to come down and try to help uh, Saul out as well. And so he has nowhere to go. No help. And then fifthly, another disadvantage is Saul's army was without proper weapons, did not have the proper weapons. What did they have for weapons? Look at verse 19. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or, or spears. We don't want them making swords or spears. So there's no, some, somehow there's no blacksmith there. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to his sharpened his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, and the forks, and the axes, and the picks, the hoes. So it came about on the day of the, of the battle that neither sword nor, nor spear were found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to, to the pass at Michmash. So the Philistines at this time dominated the blacksmith trade. They were the... They were the metal workers of their day, the, the iron workers, expert iron workers of their day. Somehow they made sure, and we're not told how, that the Israelites had no blacksmith to do all these things. And so they couldn't, they couldn't get it done in Israel. They had to go to Philistia to get even their farm tools sharpened. They had to go to Philistia to get their farm tools sharpened. So, and they were ripped off of that, by the way. They were charged an exorbitant price to get their tools sharpened. So... Philistines got this monopoly on all this blacksmith trade. And it looks like Israel only had weapons made maybe of wood and stone for the most part. The only guys with a sword and a spear in the army were two guys, Saul and Jonathan. Their weaponry was horrible, severely disadvantaged. Well, we'll have to wait till next week to see what happens. We go to chapter 14. This is to be continued. Didn't you always hate that in see that the words to be continued seems like all is lost at this point the odds are stacked against israel there's no way out they're trapped by the enemy the philistines are about to put them in checkmate right there's no moves left for israel to make and so it's a desperate situation it's caused by this ever encroaching philistine influence this non-spiritual leadership provided by saul the disobedience of the people or disobedience of, of, of Saul. But the Lord can even work through circumstances such as these, can he? We've seen this again and again in the Scripture. In fact, the situation is tailor-made for the Lord to intervene and to do his work. And that's what he's done again and again. To be a huge underdog for Israel is no problem for God, by the way. Maybe a problem for us is no problem for him. Does anybody remember what happened when Gideon had 300 men? God worked through that, right? Do you think that, Saul, that God could work through Saul and his 600 men? It's possible. Maybe you find yourself in a tough situation tonight. Things are not what you want them to be. You're hemmed in, you're trapped, and you feel like there's no way out. Because Maybe because of your own disobedience, our own disobedience. Maybe because maybe you may be the innocent party, and, and maybe you need to repent of your disobedience, or maybe you just need to trust the Lord in your circumstances. 
But just remember with the Lord, what? What's impossible? Nothing, right? Nothing's impossible. Uh, it says in Romans, he's able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the Lord is able. He's able. He can do anything. He's, nothing's impossible for him. Next week, we're going to see what the Lord does with this desperate set of circumstances they find themselves in. Fortunately, his track record is one of faithfulness. The question is, do we trust him? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, for the scripture, and, and that we can learn from it. We just pray tonight that we will um, take this, these words to heart, take uh, the uh, Saul's disobedience to heart, realize this is not the way you want us to go. We pray we'd be people who would obey you, people who would trust you, people who would love you with all our hearts, people who would be people after your own heart. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.